salad, ear of corn, chocolate, and steak. In in what order, though? Salad, steak, and corn all at the same time, then chocolate, oh, and a peach. That's Aiden on What He Ate Today. Hello, and welcome to Can't Unread, the podcast about the texts and ideas that change us. My name is Rosie Pasqualini, and I'm joined by my dear friend Aiden Paradis today to talk about an article called The Best Books on the Politics of Information. It's an interview by Sophie Rowell with the Irish political scientist Henry Farrell. It's from the website Five Books, where cool people recommend books related to their areas of expertise. Aiden has an interest in economics, and I'm currently volunteering for a political organization. We thought we would tackle this piece because it unites these two topics, economics and politics, through the study of information. These are two sides of distributing resources. Um, Politics is practically ubiquitous in deciding the distribution of resources. And uh, so are markets. Today, Aiden and I are going to take a look at the relationship between politics and economics, and how this relationship is mediated by the distribution of information. In order to do that, we're going to dive deep into some of everyone's favorite subjects, including light bulbs, deep learning, and communism. For the sake of understanding, we're going to focus on the ideas presented in the five books interview as opposed to the books themselves, but I encourage you to check out the specific books as well. But before we get into all this, here's a message from our sponsor, me of course. That's right, it's ya boy. I'm always looking for interesting people to discuss interesting readings with. If you want to be on the show, go to cantunread.com and click on the banner at the top. Fill out the form to let me know what you like to think about, and we'll pick something to read together. I look forward to dissecting your brain. Okay, let's get started. All right, Aiden, let's do it. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Cool. Uh, as, as I said, I've got a bit of a stomachache, but my my passion for conversation <laughs> transcends you were extremely excited to uh, to do this reading and that made me happy why were you so excited about this what aspects of it were most interesting to you it overlaps with a lot of personal interests of mine i like discussions about uh, markets and alternative to markets, and um, in particular, how to modify markets to make for better outcomes. In his interview with Roll, Farrell proposes a series of books to help build a hypothetical curriculum about information and information politics. He says that, quote, If we are to understand how politics and markets work at the moment, we need to pay attention to how algorithms work and how the economy is being remade from the ground up 
by these new forms of information processing. He's asking, how have advances in our ability to process and share information changed our political systems and the way our economies work, specifically our markets? To start to understand this, let's get clear on what markets are and what they're for. Do you think you could give us a very broad um, overview of what markets are and how they work? Which I know is a large question, but like, what is economics? How yeah, do so, economy? So you prepped me for this, and I did, and and I was I've been thinking about it today. Um, so economics is not just the study of markets, um, and that's a, a crucial thing that comes up over and over in this piece. My my favorite definition of economics is that it's the uh, study of the distribution of limited resources, which is all resources because we live in a finite universe. I, the more abstract definition I've seen is it's the study of the movement of things in a medium. I don't really that like is that. Very broad. Yeah. I don't. I, but but I can see how it works. You can think of it as the study of trade. It is how it usually gets. Um, used is in terms of trade between people. Um, but the tools that do that can be used for uh, things quite different from trade. Um, so I think that the best way to think of it is it's, it's an answer to the question of how do we move and distribute resources. Um, and so it overlaps with politics in a bit, in a way, and that hence the, the, the title of this piece. Politics is, among humans, concerned with the same thing. Who has the authority to determine who gets what? It's, it's often said that the price of anything is whatever people are willing to pay. Um, but that's not completely true. The, the price of something is um, a product of what people are willing to pay, the, the most that the buyer is willing to pay in concert with the leading to not use the words pay. So are we just defining market here as a, a, the arena where people buy and sell things? That's, that's pretty close to the dictionary definition, yes. But mm -hmm. um, for a market to do, it's to be a... Um, a force of efficiency in resource distribution. You have to have two people in competition with each other, two people either trying to buy the same thing or trying to sell the same thing. Hmm. Um, because without that, then what you get is either um, the least that the seller will accept or the most that the buyer will accept probably just determined by, you know, who can bully the other person the most. <laughs> um, but when you have a second person there willing to say, to, to tell the seller, I will pay more, or to tell a buyer, I will charge you less, it immediately forces the two parties to, they, they can't trick the other person, right? They, they can't trick the person who's buying and selling from them the highest buying price or the lowest selling price, mm -hmm. if depending on whether they're the buyer or the seller. And okay. ideally, you're going to have at least two people on both sides. 
And so they will meet in the middle at a price which reflects um, the actual value of the thing. What's important about a market system, both for Farrell and for Aiden, is that through the interactions between buyers and sellers that determine what people are and aren't willing to pay for things, there's an inherent calculation of social value. E.g., as Aiden says, a meeting in the middle at a price which reflects the value of a particular good in a particular social system. And this meeting in the middle is a type of information processing. This idea of information processing is the focus of Charles Lindblom, one of the authors mentioned in his book about the market system, which, shockingly to all, is entitled The Market System. Do you think you can talk about why he is relating information politics to the markets? My first intuition would be that, uh, again, these are two sides of distributing resources. Um, politics is, is perhaps not a necessary part of distributing resources, but it is practically ubiquitous um, in deciding the distribution of resources. And uh, so are markets. How are political systems and market systems similar? As Zayden says, both determine the distribution of resources, politics through legislature, and markets through the finely tuned, though still faulty, ascription of monetary and social value to goods. One of the books that Farrell brings up is a novel called Red Plenty. Farrell describes its premise thusly. Quote, so it begins with a mathematician, Leonid Kontorovich, who has this wonderful insight when he's sitting in a tram. It's a beautifully designed scene describing how Kontorovich is stuffed into a tram with all these smelly, sweaty human beings. He thinks about the ways these human beings can somehow magically coordinate themselves so that they all get on and off the tram at the same time. This is the beginning of the notion of linear programming, of how you can take a complex system of variables that looks like it doesn't have any obvious solution and figure out ways to optimize it. Now, Leonid Kantorvik was a real person and, um, as Farrell mentions, the only Soviet to win the Nobel Prize in economics. What Spufford is doing in his novel, Red Plenty, is retelling the story of what's called the socialist calculation debate, essentially as it happened in real life. Aiden described the socialist calculation debate to me like this. The socialist calculation debate is whether it's possible to distribute resources without a market on a national scale, um, and to do so at the same efficiency of the market as as a market would. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the nice things about markets is is that they um, not only describe, uh, incentivize, and so make such that things are done at the right price, but they also uh, organize in terms of who gets what, where. Mm -hmm. um, 
So some regions may need things and others may not. Right. Um, and some things may not be needed at all. Farrell talks a lot about um, centralized planning, which is essentially an, an extreme form of what you're talking about. Um, and I don't really understand if the end goal is a very tightly controlled market or just no market, or if those are the same thing. It, it depends, but typically the in the, this context, they're talking about no market at all. Right. So there's a whole way, there's tons of different kinds of socialism. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect that we're having the classic socialism, communism mm -hmm. confusion here. Um, you know, socialism may involve markets, but communism never does. And so this is more of a communist problem mm -hmm. um, where they, they want to have a a, a society uh, without currency um, where where the average person cannot uh, sell something perhaps they can't even sell their labor um, right and anybody can produce labor as, as a commodity but um, you, under this system perhaps you don't get to choose where you work the socialist calculation debate was and still is about whether or not you can centrally plan an economy whether you can have the benefits of the market without its downsides by having the government, trademark symbol, set the prices for everything, perhaps with an algorithm. Why would someone want to centrally plan an economy with algorithms or otherwise, as opposed to uh, uh, letting the free market run its course, or just the market in general, maybe with some constraints, run its course? I would think that the motivation would be fairness. Um, it is assuming that you have a virtuous uh, market planner. Um, it is much more difficult for a, a citizen to exploit a centrally planned system and take more than their fair share. What it means to take more than one's fair share is, of course, debatable, but Aiden believes that the light bulb example is, at the very least, rather shady. Infamously, the, 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 the example that everybody loves to give is um, light bulbs. Um, when, when Thomas Edison invented the filament light bulb, um, it did not have a limited lifespan. In principle, a filament light bulb, um, it, I mean, it won't last forever, but you can make them that last, some that last like a century. Um, and you can still buy those today, actually. But uh, within just a couple years of light bulbs entering mass production, um, all of the light bulb manufacturers, you know, they just invited each other to... Uh, a big meeting in New York and they um, agreed both on price fixing uh, hmm. and on um, making uh, light bulbs that would break after a certain amount of time. The point of having a planned economy with no market is to prevent morally questionable actions such as these from arising from your citizenry. Instead, all the morally questionable actions can now be taken by you, the government. But as you might imagine, it is very difficult to implement a marketless system because you need to do all the calculations that the market usually does itself. 
Aiden uses a grocery store as a sort of microcosm for this complexity. Grocery stores are notoriously unprofitable. Their profit margin is a sliver because they are still well-functioning markets. But another thing to remember is what, not just the price of the things in the grocery store, but what is in the grocery store. So the things that people don't buy don't get restocked. What's your favorite thing in the grocery store, Aiden? Uh, once I'm out of time, it was the magazine section, but those have kind of gone to crap. <laughs> oh, really? Wait, did you read like USA Today and things like that? No, I read Popular, Popular Mechanics. Science. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, My favorite and, uh, thing in- PC Gamer when I could find it. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I remember that from the library at my high school. Anyway, yeah. My, my favorite thing in grocery stores is, is whoopie pies. I think we could make some at my house if we wanted to, but I love whoopie pies. I got a whoopie pie from the general store for maybe the first time in my life, like a week ago. Huh. You know, I think that speaking of the general store, but not that one, um, I forget what it's called. The place near your house where you pay for things in good faith. You know what I'm talking about? You leave money for them and you take the thing. Oh, the um, the orchard. Yeah, that's an interesting economic phenomenon. Right. But anyway, um, I'm sorry that I totally derailed you there. That that wasn't that wasn't my intent. You were talking about grocery stores being a good example of a nearly perfect market. Yeah, so um, they are – what's in the grocery store is according to demand and supply, of course. Um, and uh, the price that things are in the grocery store is according to supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you, you can even think of all the things that are different varieties. You know, there's, there's people make jokes about how many kinds of peanut butter there are and stuff. Um, the Those are little sub-markets that are – doing pretty well in terms of market efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to talk about planned economies here. Try if you can, and I don't think that anybody really can, but try yeah. to imagine the complexity involved in filling that grocery store. All of the ingredients needed, not just the foods, but the packaging, all right. of the steps to make the packaging, all of the different kinds of lab- labor needed for all the different kinds of foods. If you take something simple like uh, plastic, you know, plastic is a p- component of uh, grocery store products that probably many of the products in the grocery store share. There's probably certain kinds of plastic that are shared behind a lot of the, between a lot of the packages in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And that plastic has a price. But those, every manufacturer of the product in the grocery store, they get that plastic at a good price without communicating with each other at all. All of their communication is done through one thing, the price they're willing to pay to the market for plastic. The market does a pretty darn good, you might even say nearly perfect job of communicating the information of the degree of need for things like plastic and the supply mm-hmm. and getting them to the pe- getting that plastic to the people who need it with amazingly little communication. 
through the various lenses of his recommended books. Farrell talks a lot about replicating the market's intrinsic calculations using machine learning, specifically using an algorithm. This algorithm would have to calculate the best use for each unit of each resource. For example, it would calculate what portion of all available cotton should be turned into sheets, t-shirts, and or socks. It would calculate where to distribute those sheets, t-shirts, and socks. And it would do this calculation for every single resource adjusted for the availability of those resources and the places where they were needed. The difficulty of creating an algorithm that distributes resources at a large scale might not be intuitively obvious. After all, we've had plenty of advances in machine learning recently. Deep learning really only became a thing about 15 years ago. Deep learning is a form of cognition-like processing that involves multiple layers of algorithms or procedures. For example, in a program that is identifying an image, one layer might detect edges, the next layer might detect certain groups of edges, and so on and so forth, until the program is able to say, yes, that is a picture of someone looking mortified because they forgot they had their mask on and tried to eat a sandwich. In terms of real-life applications, you may remember IBM's Watson from that one time it beat everyone at Jeopardy, causing learned people everywhere to question their ontological value. You may also be aware that its natural language abilities generally flopped when applied to the task of giving advice for cancer treatment, causing IBM to question its oncological value. Facial recognition technologies are also, generally speaking, products of deep learning, and they have recently exceeded our ability as humans to recognize each other, which is impressive because we have a specific part of the brain that has thousands of years of evolution behind it and has been optimized for just this task. My favorite recent example of deep learning is NVIDIA's image inpainting system, where you select part of an image to be masked, and the program will fill in this part of the image using its best guess. If you want to have a meat suit crisis, you can try it on your own face or body. I will link it in the show notes alongside one of my other favorite resources, thispersondoesnotexist.com. Despite its shortcomings, the fact that machine learning can complete an image pixel by pixel in a way that is often indistinguishable from reality does make it feel like it's on track to do pretty much anything we want it to. So, what's the main challenge in algorithming our way to a more equitable economy? Here's what Aiden has to say. Some people think, based on what I read, that centralized planning of the economy might be possible because of machine learning. Um, and I think you had a slightly different response to this in the reading, but what I gathered was that Farrell doesn't agree with this. What do you think? Do you, do you have an opinion on this? 
Um, we really like it when machine and algorithms can, or machine learning systems can, um, you know, look through 10,000 things and mm -hmm. find a, find an answer. Um, but one of the things in um, that piece that I was talking about is that the, uh, at the time of the Soviet Union, the people whose job it was to um, do the central planning estimated that there were a hundred million economic entities in the Soviet Union. Um, what do you mean by entities? It, it like means, points that needs to be considered. Yes, so it uh. means it means the the number of products that products that the Soviet Union produces and consumes, hmm. um, and the number of you know people who can produce labor, um, and the number of things like you know time, uh, energy, uh, space on a machine, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, and so they concluded that it was impossible that it was around 100 million. And, and I think that that stays relatively true. But I mean, I think that the thing to remember is even if it weren't true, even if machine learning were able to come up with a, a good structure for the economy at that level of granularity, the cool thing about markets is that the markets update instantaneously whenever a little change happens, it's reflected throughout the whole system pretty quickly. Um, so you would need to come up with a, a system of machine learning that wasn't just good enough to produce an answer, but good enough to um, produce an answer so fast that it can uh, that that its speed can that it's the speed that it can respond to changes is competitive. How fast is fast? Aiden thinks gas is a salient example here. A gas is often listed down to the ten thousandth of a dollar. I don't have any coins in my wallet for a hundredth of a penny. But markets are so efficient, especially with information technology today, mm -hmm. that we can change the prices of things that finally, even while the gas is being pumped. In addition to issues with efficiency and the sheer magnitude of the information at stake here, something to consider when using an algorithm in this way is the somewhat controversial issue of machine learning bias. What puts people off about using the word bias to describe machine learning is that the term bias implies a deviation from a state of objectivity. I can objectively know that two candidates are equally good for a job, but might be biased toward a particular person because they are wearing a shirt with pushing the cat on it. This is a clear example of bias because there's a standard of objectivity that I'm missing on account of my unbridled adoration of pushing the cat. But objectivity in terms of an algorithm is a bit more tricky. Here's an example. 
a lot of people believe that the YouTube recommended algorithm puts people at risk for radicalization because its suggestions become more extreme, as one article in the conversation describes it, as you go on. The relatively benign example that they use is that if you watch videos about jogging and click from recommendation to recommendation, you're probably going to end up watching videos about marathons and then ultramarathons. Why? Well, it's because the algorithm is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's getting you to watch longer and to watch more things. And people are likely to click on things that are just a bit more shocking or tantalizing than whatever they just watched. So that's what YouTube will give you. Of course, this means that people who don't inhale clickbait, aka better people than me, will still be served clickbait material. At the very least, the user will be tempted with a disproportionate amount of clickbait material until their abnormally healthy use of YouTube changes the pattern of their recommendations. And that's where you might argue that the bias comes in, as what's served is partially tailored to an individual's tastes, but also to a prediction of those tastes. That prediction reflects an average, specifically an average propensity to consume content with increasing degrees of shock value. So, can an algorithm display bias like a human can? Not exactly. In the case of the YouTube algorithm, we might say that it's not biased enough. It works better than we want it to eschewing certain standards of media consumption in order to rack up the views. We didn't know those standards needed to be instituted until we realized we were all collectively beneath them. The real bias is in the consumer, but it is perpetuated by the algorithm. A similar sort of issue might occur in an algorithm used for central planning. We may omit certain variables or give too much weight to variables that don't matter very much. When it's brought up in this piece, the politics of information, they're specifically referring to what, what I think he calls categories. Um, so like category reinforcement. Um, what is it? It's like... Imagine that you had a, a, an algorithm or a, um, a machine learning system that you were trying to teach to recognize <clears throat> uh, bone fractures in x-rays, which is something that machine learning is used for. And you give it two sets to sort things into fracture and non-fracture. And it does a great job on that. But then it turns out that, um, well, the real life example is that the machine ended up learning to recognize the label on the images, which labeled it as <laughs> fracture or non-fracture. That is wonderful. Um, but, but the more important possibility is that it would turn out that, um, and this is sort of difficult in this example, but if you could imagine that it turned out that whether or not the bone was fractured actually didn't matter. Um, 
that it would have been more useful and more important to test for something else in the image. An application of this would be something like you train the machine to uh, determine demand for different kinds of shirts, right? Mm -hmm. And you categorize it and, and you say, um, you know, determine the number of red shirts and blue shirts that we will need. And um, it turns out that all along a more important and more powerful category system would have been collared and uncollared shirts. I think that someone who was a proponent of this, uh, these types of, of algorithms and of central planning um, and who, who was more optimistic of, about the technology would be like, well, a truly broad algorithm, like an all-encompassing system, would be able to determine that. Yes, We wouldn't need to be determining it for it. Yes, the, the, that's true. But as, as I was speaking about a moment ago, it's computationally impossible. It's too much information, at least to deal with at a reasonable speed. Mm -hmm. um, so you would have to use cheats. And, and, and the most likely of those cheats is um, artificially reducing the number of variables by creating categories. Of course, a machine learning algorithm is different from a static set of variables. Machine learning is adaptive, and a deep learning algorithm especially will tune itself to compensate for certain errors if it catches them. But the complexity and flexibility of deep learning is what makes it difficult to manage. Unlike with the algorithm that fills in an image, an expert might not be able to quickly tell when a central planning algorithm has made a mistake. Another thing to think about is that, perhaps unlike a market, an algorithm created to fairly distribute resources will be directly value-driven in a more bureaucratic way. But in a market, value emerges organically through the minutia of exchange, for better or for worse. While the algorithm would need to be flexible, some of its goals, e.g. what does fairness look like numerically, is there a certain percentile of wealth and or stuff having that individuals simply have no need for? Would need to be determined at the outset. Aiden and I talked a bit about the relationship between economics, politics, and value. What were we talking about? Uh, oh yeah, utility. Um, so, you know, you, you can, and often people do, make the goal of an economic system the maximization of um, utility. And utility is a technical term in, in um, economics, um, which just refers to, you know, the, the, the value that a thing has to a person, not with respect to money. It will be expressed in money, but before you can have a transaction in money, you know, there, there has to be an understanding with each of the individuals as to what the uh, product's utility is to them. 
you know, and this is why. What exactly do you mean by maximizing utility? People get the most value? Yeah, meaning you want people to be receiving as much stuff that has as much utility to them as possible. Different populations will have different priorities, and political science is needed to ascertain those priorities in some cases. Well, but, right, but you're also going off of the, the assumption that, you know, I think you're already making a democratic assumption here. Let's look at people's priorities and meet them. Um, not everyone's going to agree with that. Um, well, then, if it's an authoritarianism, then the system will meet the 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 priorities of the authority. Right, but my um, only point is that you need a, a basis of, of, of value. I, I agree that you need to have a value or goal mm -hmm. before starting out. I would say that if the task is make the best possible economy, I don't think that it's a, I, I don't think it's strictly necessary to have a person to come up with those values and goals. I think most of them are pretty obvious. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they're not obvious enough to political scientists, I, I suppose, or to and, people. But that doesn't mean that there's no place for political science, but when this article I'm just saying that it sounds like based science, on it sounds uh, sorry to interrupt but it sounds like you know based on what you're saying it seems like the world should be perfect and it's no, not because because the powers of economics have simply not been put towards making good economies or even if they could you know the economists are not the one with the authorities it's the political mm -hmm. figures who have authorities right so and that's there's a value tons issue. and no, it's not. It's it's an authority issue. So, the tons and t tons of times, um, we see this nearly constantly in the you know, United States. Um, the economic advisors to the president, or what have you, will say one thing, and then um, the president will say, "Well, thank you. I'll take that under advisement." And <laughs> um, for me to get reelected, I need to do something else. Right. For me to be reelected more often than not means for me to continue receiving donations from X corporations. Mm -hmm. um, in the United States, we have a little bit of defense against that with um, our uh, head of the treasury being uh, somewhat independent from the executive branch. Um, once, in, once appointed, I, I don't know what the procedure is to get rid of a uh, head of treasury, but the, the president definitely cannot fire the head of the treasury. Our, our current president has tried many times. Aiden gave me this one sentence summary of Farrell's interview. You summarized the uh, Farrell piece with this quote. It's not too late to use the bigger than ever information generating powers of technology to make better societies rather than richer oligarchs, but we must be proactive about it. How do you think we can use these powers for good? God, where to start? Well, there's, you know, there's an episode of the West Wing where they're, they're trying to get a different census taking technique um, approved, wherein you instead of knocking on a bunch of doors and you know missing some of them 
you do a really thorough job on like 10% of the neighborhoods that you think are representative. The idea is that the current census technique isn't getting everybody anyway. And right. it's not getting everybody in such a way that if you were able to put more effort into it, you actually could. That if we chose to, if we chose to deviate a little bit from our, you know, very body-oriented, like, no, it can't happen on paper. It has to happen with going places, touching things, seeing people. If we were able right. to move a little bit away from that, we would have a slightly better society in terms of a census. Alternative methods of voting also fall under this, right? I mean, you know, the quadratic voting that was described in the article, but, you know, a lot of people have heard of ranked choice voting, which I think is better. The, the real powers of information technology um, applied to creating a just society are honestly a little hard to imagine try and picture the um, the tools that are currently used to um, determine markets for products mm -hmm. or consumers who will buy products. Try and imagine that being used for things like public services mm -hmm. or um, prison recidivism, stuff like that. You know, try and imagine just a, a slightly more controlled economy. Mm -hmm. um, with things like carbon markets or what have you. What about? You know, but um, these are just these are just you know the 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 mainstream sort of small potatoes. Doesn't ideas. sound small potatoes to me. I think you're overestimating the power of people to <laughs> actually make change happen. What are the large potatoes? I'm saying I can't imagine the large potatoes. Well, I had fun. Thanks for having me. I had fun, too. That was Aiden Paradis on markets, algorithms, and the politics of information. Don't forget to go to cantunread.com for show notes, including links to the fun programs we mentioned. Join us next time for a surprise episode, e.g. I haven't figured out what will be covered yet. It is going to be awesome, though. I hope you'll tune in. Thanks for listening. <laughs>